you are a new or first-time listener, welcome to Found in Translation. My name is Daniel Degbison. I am the host and showrunner of this project. Found in Translation is a pan-African research initiative and anthropological interview series centering the stories of black people at the intersection of traditional African and American culture. Today's interview is with Chigo, a Nigerian-American queer woman and pan-African. We talk at length about African colonialism's legacy, cultural reclamation, and the importance of organizing as a tool against white supremacy. Let's jump in. So I was dating someone for a while, and um, she is African-American, and I'm Nigerian. And so, you know, we were talking, it was great, and then, like, um, we're just talking about Nigerians, and she's like, oh yeah, Nigerians are classist and anti-black as hell. And I was like, okay, <laughs> pause. That was, that was like a very, I don't know, it was just a very weird um, experience for me because I feel like growing up, there's, I felt that there was tension between Africans or Nigerians and African descendants of slavery in the U.S. or African Americans in the U.S. and like just, I felt like there was some kind of resentment that was going on there. Um, so I questioned her a little further about her statement and it came from her experience dating some Nigerians and how um, they could be a bit anti-black and classist. So I was okay, those are your experience. And at the same time, even though I recognize that there might be a bit of resentment between um, African-Americans and Africans, I also do realize that Nigerians can be a bit anti-black, just like from my own family experiences, the things I've heard from cousins, aunts, uncles, my mother, you know, just some statements that just like, uh, just like, it it comes from a place of ignorance, but just, I don't know, just a lot of classist things like, oh, like they don't like, they have um, single mother households they just go to jail, they don't prioritize education, this and that. But I don't know, to hear that from someone I was dating, it was weird. It was really weird for me. And then also, it just brought up another obstacle in dating for me because like, not only do I have to worry about being queer and bringing a woman home to meet my parents and my family, there's also this issue of, well, what if my parents are very classist, you know, towards this person I'm dating, you know, like she, she's an artist and like she went to college, but she's currently just focusing on her art and knowing my mother, she would not be okay <laughs> with me dating an artist. So, um, yeah, it was just like another element that's like, wow, like my culture or being Nigerian for me, um, it has a lot of impacts that I'm still, that still come up, you know, things like, I feel like at one point I am comfortable and I totally understand what it means to be Nigerian and a Nigerian woman in America, but then, you know, other things pop up and say, oh, whoa, (laughs) something else I have to consider. Needless to say, I was very turned off by that comment um, just because um, if I'm dating someone, I don't want them to have these preconceived notions about what my culture is, and also I'm very proud to be Nigerian, so I didn't appreciate her saying those things about um, my culture, so we ended it there, but it's definitely something that I thought about. I even asked my mom, I was like, what if I dated an artist, how would you feel? And she's like, well, how, 
like you are marrying someone, not them marrying you. Like you need someone who supports you. It's like okay, so she did have some some foundation to what she was saying, but yeah, that's my story. There's like a challenging dynamic between West Africans, the Africans in general, and Americans, and I think I can kind of understand it through through the perspective that Africans are descended from a legacy of colonization, so they have like a European worldview, mm-hmm. and there's definitely almost like seeds of, okay, if I was trained in a British education system, mm-hmm. if I have... French is like a second language um, then if I come to this country then of course like and I see like there's a caste system here that's dependent on race like I don't want to be involved in the same in the same group as the people who are at the bottom so this denominator that is me being African and that connection to a British legacy should put me a little bit over the top um, which is uncomfortable, but like I understand it. I understand why that like that mindset is. Yeah, like definitely understand how the mindset came to be. For sure. What do you think is the solution here? If there's, it's probably not an easy solution. Because um, I think also where it comes from is that like when Africans immigrate to the U.S. and they see, like you mentioned, this caste system that's based on skin color and they realize, oh, I share the same skin color as these people who are treating fat, treated poorly in this country. They, they try to, like, not like rationalize it, but they try, they, they say, well, I'm different, you know, and they say I'm different because like, I, I have a job, I come from a two parent household, we prioritize education. And in saying that they're different, I feel like there's also an element of blaming, um, black people in this country for the harsh treatment that they experience by saying, well, the reason why you're discriminated against in this country is because you're not good enough. It's because you didn't go to school, you don't have a two-parent household, and you do drugs, and you go to prison, et cetera, et cetera. And like like you said, it comes a lot from like being in Africa, having a British education, and um, a British mentality, but also like coming to the U.S. and like the media and the news and movies and just advertisements and all the notions that they share about like black people especially like in the 90s when my parents immigrated here 90s and 80s like just the image of black people wasn't really like flattering you know so yeah I think it's those two but what we can do about it um well first start like more positive images of black people in the media. Um, Also in Africa, just like not having these European schools, like they, in history classes in Nigeria, they learn British history. They don't learn Nigerian history, you know? So like for start, like teaching Africans in Africa about Africa would be a great start, you know? Um, More flattering images of black people in this country so that when people immigrate, not only Africans, but Asians, Hispanics, when they immigrate to this country, they don't think that black people deserve to be second-class citizens. And yeah, down with colonialization. It feels like there's definitely like a micro and like a macro side 
so like this like situation where it's like the macro is looking at okay like this is our parents culture this is like how they think this is how the generation above us is like this is their perspective and there's like a certain legacy that we've been handed down and that we have to kind of fix now we're not fixed but we have to kind of address, address i guess yeah um yeah yeah i definitely think there's some addressing that needs to be done there's some mindsets that we that have been handed down to us um like from my parents our grandparents um and in coming to a different culture that's like different from what they grew up in and what they know yeah there's some mindsets that we do have to address and yeah the classism the anti-blackness for sure is some of the mindsets that we need to address uh with the older generation like not everyone needs to go to school to be successful you know there's multiple ways to be successful in life you know um there's multiple definitions of success like having a doctorate degree doesn't mean that you are a successful person um everyone has their own definition of success and just like yeah moving away from their ideas of success and importance and class and, yeah obviously. just and understand that life is more malleable than like these structures that you've been taught mm-hmm. i feel like that's something that they're starting to understand more just kind of as time progresses um i can say just like with my parents and with, like just people in my family circle it definitely feels like the longer that they stay in the u.s they kind of the more they're kind of t- they tap into i guess i would say youth culture or an understanding beyond everything that they've known as like in a for them living like in a way where they have to survive every day in mm-hmm. West Africa. So well in Nigeria specifically. Tell me about your personal journey through understanding your identity because um it seems like with the two references that you gave me, Half of a Yellow Sun and Transcendent Kingdom. Um, Transcendent Kingdom seems like it was very it was a very spiritual book just from um, the research I did on it I didn't read it but I did take a look at what the themes were mm-hmm. um, with Half of a Yellow Sun I watched the movie I'm still reading the book but I know that's more on a micro on a macro level with understanding the history so it's like you have these kind of two these two perspectives in which you can kind of address your culture um, did you start with both at the same time did you start with one of them or how how was that journey like for you? Okay. So I got into Nigerian literature from my grandmother. She introduced um, No Longer At Ease to me when I was eight. <laughs> when I was eight, I should not have been reading that by Chinua Achibe. Um, and then later in life, um, I think I was, I don't know, how, how did I, I don't know. I don't know how I was not discovered, but I learned about um, Chimamanda Adichie, um, but I did. And the first book of hers that I read was Half of the Yellow Sun, and it was amazing, you know. Um, I learned about the Biafra War. Um, I, it was a love story, but mostly what I took from it was, like, life after independence from colonialization and the Biafra War. Um, so that was, that was, yeah, that was very new to me because I didn't know that there was a genocide against evil people my people in Nigeria. I never knew that. You know, I didn't know that 
we try to form our own nation. And after reading that book, I asked more questions. Um, I did a little bit more research. Um, like I found out my mom was born during the war. My dad was a child uh, during the war. Um, I found out like my one of my friends, her father has severe PTSD from the war and just like how it really affected people. I found out what the flag looked like, has half of the yellow sun on it. And yeah, I just started to pick up on how Ebos have recovered and how they've lived after um, the Biafran War. But I also learned how the capital of Lagos, or the capital of Nigeria moved from Lagos to Abuja to really unify, as an attempt to unify the country. Um, so yeah, that was just a great book to learn about the history, uh, aspect of history in Nigeria and also um, history, the history of Igbo people in Nigeria. Transcendent Kingdom though, um, I read that last year. It's a book that came out last year. Um, it's by Yage Yassi, the same author who wrote Homegoing. And to me, I related to it because it was a first gen story. Um, it told the story of um, this girl who um, her parents, she will, I think, well, she was born in Ghana, but she immigrated to the U.S., but immigrated as a child. So to me, it's still like a first gen experience. Um, and even though it's a Ghanaian story, um, the aspect of religion and um, being a child of African immigrants, I really related to um, the story, really. The mother in the story suffers from deep depression, and there's just like this disconnect that the child has always felt with the mother and just like the sense that that they weren't really close and that's something i relate to and i feel like it's common in first gen um situations or first gen um relationships or familial relationships because i feel like parents just aren't that close like <laughs> i i have friends and they're just like yeah i'm best friends with my mom or i'm best friends with my dad and i'm like what i cannot have my mother as my best friend that's just so weird you know so just like having this like disconnect um with your parent and also at the same time in the book she talks about how not even seeing her parent as a her mother as a human like as her mother dealt with depression it's just like your mother why don't you just get up and cook for me or have a job and stuff but like she is a human with her own struggles um so that's another thing that's something else i related to as a first generation um american just about how like Yes, there is this disconnect. Sometimes I feel like I don't give my mother or my parents enough grace to be human and to be flawed and um, to make mistakes. Um, and the last part about that book that um, I related to was religion. Um, uh, in the book, um, the I, I don't remember if the daughter is very religious, but the mother was extremely religious. She was a very Christian woman. Um, and from my sense in the book, the, the daughter just didn't really share the same type of beliefs with religion, and I do too. <laughs> I, I relate to the daughter in this case, where I feel like a lot of African, especially Nigerian parents, or just Nigerians in general, are just very, very religious, you know? There's just like this cling and this like deep Christianity, not even religious, so very Christian, you know, very devout loyal Christians and always putting God in the church first and reading about that um how it conflicted with the daughter and it, it like really 
like there uh, in the story it took place in Southern America and she was going to a racist church and it was just very frustrating for her for her for her to watch her mom go to this racist church just because it's Christian and I related to that I, I didn't grow up in a racist area but just like this devout this devoutness to a, a white a Christian a white God you know I think Christianity is a white God just this devoutness to a white God that just really turned me off so um yes transcendent kingdom Ghanaian story but just i don't know the relationships between child daughter and mother relationship between first generation and immigrant parent really related to that and half of yellow sun it was great to learn about like nigeria and evo's um history so yeah really resonated with those two stories both of them like in different ways though. yes yeah. in very different ways yeah like one is just like a history and transcendent kingdom is more like a relationship like relating just seeing the relationships that i have with my family mirrored in this book and understanding it as like a uniquely first generation experience yeah african first generation african experience the way you talk about it it feels like it really like hit home for you um, I can imagine that it wasn't like it's not because it's, there's it's probably because it's not like those stories are really being like circulated like really often it was probably it felt like you were really seen like, when you got that book mm -hmm. a topic that you mentioned um, about Transcendent Kingdom was with the church and just the passion that the Nigerian community has for Christianity and serving like, like you said like this white God um, can you talk a little bit about how it reflects your own personal experience or the history of colonization and kind of what needs to be done in terms of addressing the fact that we are kind of brainwashed into seeing Christianity as more authentic than traditional Nigerian religions, um, but at the same time, not blaming the individuals who are victims of the brainwash of this brainwashing. Yeah, I guess I don't have to blame the people, <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely. I feel like Christianity is a tool of colonialization. Actually, I think Christianity is a tool of white supremacy. Even like in the U.S., like I feel like Christianity was used as a tool to to enforce slavery. You know of enslaved Africans in this country and in Africa, in Nigeria, Christianity was a tool of colonization. You know, they came with their soldiers, they came with their missionaries, they used it to almost, not, not completely, but wipe out our culture, you know, like with Christian schools, you, they teach English, you know, they discourage certain traditions, certain cultures that we might have, they bring in new mindsets. Um, to our communities that we primarily didn't have. Like a lot of patriarchal ideas in Africa came from Christianity. Like it wasn't a traditional belief that we had. Um, yes, you know, you're very gracious to say I don't have to blame the individuals who crashed Christianity, but I do urge them to think, I don't know, I guess my opinion about religion and spirituality is I think it's very personal and individual practice. And I think that when there is like uh, strict rules or structures about it, that's when it can be, um, become harmful and be, can be used as a weapon 
So I just urge people to keep it individual. You know, don't always follow the rules and the structure. Because like I said, Christianity as a structure was used as a tool of colonization. It was used as a very harmful tool. Um, I think that like if people wish to practice Christianity in their own way, with their own interpretations, they should be free to, but not um, force people to find, to live a very rigid structure of what Christianity is. Um, especially since it's an important imported religion. It's not a traditional religion of um, Africans, of Igbo people, of Nigerians. You know, and another thing that's really frustrating is that like with a lot of Nollywood movies, like movies, books, film, TVs, they do a really good job of creating a narrative. And like I growing up I watched a lot of Nollywood movies and like traditional medicine, like uh, juju, juju or native doctors, etc. It's shown as a very bad and evil thing, you know. And I think that like with these movies perpetuating this idea of like our traditional medicine, our traditional priests, priestesses, our altars, our oracles, are bad, evil things and evil spirit. It doesn't really do anything to really help us get back to the practices that we used to do. Like this idea that like juju and all these things are inherently evil things came from colonization and it came from British people coming and telling us that's evil and then we are repeating that to ourselves through movies, film, media, etc. You know, so I think that's something that's really discouraging. That's something I'd like to see change, you know, like this, why is it that people who practice religions for centuries on this land is evil? You know, how come that becomes evil? You know, like, no, like, yeah, how come that becomes evil? Just because it's not Christian, you know, just because someone from another part of the world came and told you that Jesus is our only one true savior. Like even with Christianity, this idea that you cannot have salvation or you can, no one can have, can go to heaven unless they are Christian or believe in Jesus is flawed <laughs> because it's just like, they're Buddhists, there's, there's, Jewish people, there are people of Islam, there are Hindu people, there, there are multiple ways to worship God. I, you know, I don't think that there has to be this one way to like go to heaven, you know, or one way to live your life, you know, and I think that like if you separate that and like I said, make religion a little bit more of an individual thing instead of like a strict, rigid, like everyone has to follow it, then it leaves room for other people to practice what um, calls them more and what they are more relate to. When we talk about um, religion, I feel like I need to bring up um, these are, like the generational divide because I feel like our generation sees it in a different perspective than like um, our parents or our grandparents do, um, just since they're closer to like the trauma. I think it's hard for me, I guess, to say if the tide is changing in terms of how Africans think about religion or how, or if we're getting closer to coming back to kind of the authentic, original... Um, I don't think we are. You don't think we are? No, I don't think we are. Why? Because, like, I don't know. Because even just, like, talking about it seems very weird. Like, I feel like I shouldn't be talking about, like, traditional Igbo religion. Like, um... So there's another author, Akweke, um, Amezi, who I told you about. Um, they identify as an Abanje, you know? And an Abanje is, like, a 
trickster spirit in Igbo ontology, and a lot of their books talked about Igbo ontology, but like when I see on Twitter how people react to them, claiming that they are a spirit, it's not very, it's very, I don't know, not, it's just, it, it tells me that the, the people are really stuck with their Christianity. It really just tells me that there isn't room to explore the traditional um, spirit beliefs that are native to the land. Um, I think Christianity has a very strong hold on this country. Like I've, I probably know one other Nigerian who is curious about traditional Nigerian beliefs besides myself. Yeah, I don't really know many Nigerians who are curious about traditional beliefs. Um, Christianity has a very strong hold <laughs> on our nation. You know, even like people like my age, like a lot of them, they move places, they go to church, they have their church friends. Like church is such an important part of like Nigerian culture and Nigerian life. Um, if there are intergenerational issues about American living, et cetera, et cetera, I feel like church is the glue that holds the family together to be on the same page. So I don't really see uh, our generation at least being more curious about traditional beliefs right now. Are you curious about traditional Nigerian beliefs? Personally, I'm at a point where I'm soaking up information more mm -hmm. than I'm filtering it through like my own worldview right now. Um, I mean, my family is Christian. I think we were more devoutly Christian when we came to the U.S. Um, my mom is still like really, really devoutly Christian. Um, my father doesn't go to church, um, but I think I started questioning things more when I was like 17, 18. And then I think from that point, like it was just like this discomfort with like, okay, I don't actually, I don't actually get what's going on here. Like I don't see, I don't see the same thing that it feels like my church community is seeing. Um, but of course, like as I start to kind of drift away from the church, like I end up in a circle and like a community of other people who think the same as I do. So like, maybe I'm a little bit more positive than you in terms of seeing that, um, in terms of thinking that I feel like the tide is changing a little bit, but maybe I'm just kind of so insulated. So maybe, maybe I'm not seeing the full picture, but I like to be positive and I want to be positive about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think the more that, the more radical that I think the youth community becomes in general, I think the more that traditional African religions are going to come to the mainstream. Um, but again, like I guess even the whole idea of being radical in terms of like organizing against imperialism and colonialism is still something that might be uncomfortable to a lot of people too. Um, this kind of comes around to Pan-Africanism, which mm -hmm. I know is something that um, you're interested in and that you, excites you. Something that um, I think stood out to me when I was doing a little research was how spirituality should be a tool in our organizing work um, as Pan-Africans. I don't know if that's something that you've heard of before or that you can speak on. Oh, I haven't heard about it, but I definitely agree. It should be a tool in Pan-Africanism. Just as uh, how Christianity was a tool in colonialization, why can't spirituality be a tool in reclaiming our land? Um, yeah, 
totally agree. You know, the idea of Pan-Africanism is like a unified socialist Africa. You know, we have our own resources. We go back to our own culture. We take away imperialist influences that like drain us of like people, minerals, just just money, just take and take from us, you know? And so, yeah, like you said, like I, I haven't heard of it, but I could definitely see how spirituality would be a tool of Pan-Africanism because in unifying ourselves and going back and reclaiming our history and claiming our resources, we also should reclaim our history. We also need to reclaim our culture, our food, our language, um, our practices, our spirituality, you know? Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that, you know? Like learning what traditional practices, traditional rituals, traditional spiritual beliefs were in the land is super important. Yeah. There are some books I've read that's helped me with that. Um, there's this one book, The Spirit of Intimacy. Um, it talks about spiritual, uh, how relation, it, it talks about um, the spiritual practices in Burkina Faso as it relates to relationships. Um, friendships, familial relationships, um, and romantic relationships, and how um, each relationship is not a very individual thing, how it is in the U.S. It's a very communal thing. There's a lot of sharing. There's a lot of ritual and relationship. There's a lot of calling upon spirit. And that was a beautiful book to read, something that I take with me um, and I try to practice. Even though I am Nigerian, I still think it's important to know it. Um, another book that's more specific to Igbos is After Goddess Dibia. Uh, Dibia? I'm probably saying that wrong. But Dibia is like a traditional priest in Igbo land and that that book is like, it goes through the rules. Like it goes through the creation story, it goes through um, numerology, it goes through practices and rituals, like what is a Dibia and how to become a Dibia and all these different things. That was a really enlightening book that I haven't finished yet. It's really small, but I haven't finished it because it's just like a wealth of information. But um, yeah, good books. I feel like um, for something like this, something that's like this challenging, like this like, this dense for people who aren't like kind of involved in it, who, who aren't like necessarily super open to it, it feels like you have to almost like water it down. So it's like, it's easier for you to pick up the book and read it and like have your mind open to like understanding the ideas and kind of like wrap around like, oh, okay, wow, this is literally like what was going on like hundreds, thousands of years ago. But it feels like it has to kind of be watered down for, to be introduced to to people who don't necessarily want to understand it yet. Yeah. I guess like what I would frame it as is just understanding your culture. You know, religion is part of African culture, you know, and understanding the religions that existed before colonialization. You don't have to practice it, you don't have to agree with it, but it's just one aspect of understanding yourself and your culture. Do you try to like share that with people? share that with people you meet who are still kind of Christian mindset? I don't know. No. <laughs> I was like, how do you bring that up? It's like, uh, no. But funny enough, the, the, the way I learned about that book is because someone was sharing it on uh, a platform. So I'm part of this Facebook group, Umu Ibo Unite. 
It's like a Facebook group to unite all the Igbos in um, the U.S. And it makes a lot of sense. Knowing what I knew, what I know about the Igbo genocide, I understand that there's a lot of a desire to keep the Igbo people close and to really make our minds strong. But whatever. So there's um, a Facebook call, group called Igbo Umu Igbo Unite, and um, I forgot what the thread was about. But that's where I learned a lot about like Igbo ontology. I learned about insipidity, which is this form of writing um, the Igbo language that existed like years and years ago that no one uses anymore, but it's very fascinating. I have some tattoos in Insipidi. Um, but yeah, like, I think like people, I guess people talk about it. Um, I haven't shared it with anyone just because, I only share it with people who I know are already interested. Like I've lent books to um, other like Nigerian friends because we've had conversations about like, you know, alternative religions and stuff like that. But I don't think I've ever, gone to a Christian person and be like, hey, have you learned about Igbo ontology or uh, African spirituality? Because um, I don't really know how to introduce that topic. But if it's in the context of like Igbo people learning our culture or Nigerians or Ghanaians learning their culture, then yeah, I would, I would challenge them to also learn about spirituality from the same sense. But that's how I learned about some other parts of my ego identity that I didn't know before. Can you tell me um, how you get introduced to Pan-Africanism? Oh, it's a really funny story. <laughs> so there's this book, let me get, I have a picture of the book because I don't want to mess up the title. Um, there's this book I was reading and I thought it was something else. Let me preface this to say that Trump in office screwed me up and made me really scared and confused. And um, I was doing a lot of reading. So I came across this book called A Guide for Organizing Defense Against White Supremacist, Patriarchal, and Fascist Violence. And I saw the book. I thought it was about like organizing in the U.S. against fascism, imperialism, um, and just tools to be fortified and strong against the Trump presidency. But then I started reading it, and then this per the author was like, this is a book about Pan-Africanism. I was like, wow, that's very interesting, because... I didn't think that resisting imperialism and um, fascism was being pro-Africa. You know, I didn't see that as a solution to that. I just thought you just have to resist, you know. But um, yeah, so in Pan-Africanism, this idea that like the U.S. needs to return to indigenous people, return to Turtle Island to native people, um, you know, rejecting capitalism, fortifying um, Africa, you know, uniting the people in Africa. Um, so, yeah, that's how I was introduced to it. And to me, like, it makes a lot of sense because from what I read in the book, it's like you, and also uh, there's a quote, I think it's Audrey Lord quote, that you can't destroy the master's house with the master's tools. You know, like you can't really defeat the system within the system, you have to go outside of the system. So, um, basically in addressing imperialism and fascism, it's not really by electing a new person or organizing within the U.S. It's by fortifying forces outside of the U.S., making those stronger to not really, um, I don't know. I don't even know if I'm making any sense right now. Um, but uh, No, I get it. So if okay. you're not using the tools inside the master's house, you have, if you have a better perspective of what's going on outside the U.S., then when you come to the U.S., it's not like 
you're in this fishbowl, so mm-hmm. you know what's going on, so it's easier for you to kind of pick apart what's real and what's not. Yes, and in fortifying Africa, you will collapse imperialist systems because the reason why Africa is being so drained is because of capitalism and imperialism. So in doing that, it will, yeah. I feel like a lot of this is just about individual people recognizing like how much power that they actually have. Yeah, that's hard because sometimes I forget my power, you know, like, it's like, yes, individually we have power, collectively we have even more. It's like, individually you can go far, collectively you can go further, you know. Um, so yeah, we do have power, but it has a lot to do with, it, it works better if it's done collectively. And if we all have the same goals too, not a lot of people have the same goals or think the strategy is the same way. A lot of it, I feel like, is also just like a sense of comfort. Like, yes. If we're too comfortable in the U.S. <sighs> yes. Yes. So remember how we were talking earlier about like how I thought about leaving the U.S. and I was like, yes, I really want to leave. I thought about leaving to this in this country. I was doing a lot of research, but now I'm just here. And I think the reason why I'm not really trying so hard to leave is because I'm just so comfortable here. You know, like when I was thinking and brainstorming about leaving before, there, there was, I felt like there was an immediate threat and immediate danger, so I had to go and I had to leave, you know? Like I had grab and go bags, I had cash, I was like, I have my passport, I'm ready. But now that things are more stable, it's like, I'm comfortable, you know? So I don't really have to leave. Like com- comfort, ugh, it's a poison. Like when you get comfortable, it's really hard to like move and do things. And I am a victim of comfort, yeah. Do you think things truly are more stable right now? In this country? Yeah. I feel like... I feel like things, like... It's, if we're back to, like, the fucked up things happening, but it doesn't feel so fucked up because it's not, like, in our face. You know, I feel like with Trump, like, fucked up things were happening that felt really fucked up because it was, like, very obvious and overt. But, like, now it's just, like... It's just very underwater. Like most recent example I could think of is like with Cuba, the protests that are happening in Cuba. It's really hard for me to really understand what's going on because there are so many different narratives. But what I know for sure is Cuba is a socialist country and the U.S. likes to interfere with foreign countries, especially socialist countries. So the fact that Biden is saying any kind of support for the Cuban people, I'm just like very like ear twerked about it. Even Haiti, like how their president was assassinated and finding out that people in the assassination um, crew were former U.S. agents, it's like, like yes, like America's still doing fucked up things, you know, but it doesn't feel as violent and urgent anymore, you know. So I feel comfortable, you know. Like, yes, I'm pretty sure the U.S. is interfering in Haiti. I'm pretty sure the U.S. is going to start interfering in Cuba. You know, capitalism and imperialism is going on and raging forward, but. Um, you know, like, we their vaccines, and we're here with our masks off, and, you know, we don't see about children being separated from their parents on TV anymore, so everything feels very comfortable. The fact that that comfort is, like, is, like, almost blinding is something mm-hmm. that I personally, like, I think about probably more than is healthy. <laughs> but um, the more I feel like, the more that like my eyes are open, the more I'm realizing it's so strange for like us to kind of have like this very comfortable situation, but knowing that it's like at the expense of literally like almost everyone else in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, we live literally in like 
this like I want to say dystopia, but like that word's been used so much that like it's it's obvious at this point. Like, yeah, it really is like it's scary. Yeah, it is. And like I sometimes I think like the only way that um that like Americans are even going to have like a come together or have like any type of like revolution is if things get like really really bad or things get really really uncomfortable. Yeah. I I think it's if it gets really uncomfortable for sure if it gets uncomfortable because we're all about comfort like my thing about if it gets bad is like how bad like we have like like think about Sandy Hook like children in schools murdered you know by a gun but there is no revolution for that so I think it's just like our quality of life has to be severely destructed before there's any revolution in this country because we are a very comfortable nation. I'm glad that you think about comfort as a blinding tool because I think about it for a minute and I'm like, let me watch some TV. <laughs> but something good to think about. When we talk about like comfort like, as a binding tool, something that like my mind goes in the direction of is almost like how the U.S. literally uses, I don't know if this is the U.S. using this, but or this is kind of a symptom of the problem, but the fact that progressive aspects of culture are used as like a binding tool like the fact that being queer in the u.s is way more comfortable than it is in most african countries is that's 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 a symptom of comfort um how do you how do you kind of recognize that like as somebody who's queer like the fact that you that's literally something that stops that you have to think about at least um when you travel or wherever wherever you want to go yeah that's a really good question that is a really good question because you're right it's very comfortable for me to be queer here and that type of comfort is important to me and in Ghana sometime in the spring or so they have like being queer in Ghana is illegal just like how it is in Nigeria um, but basically they have this like just talk like LGBTQ talk and the people there were arrested, you know? So I was following the story about it, and I was like, wow, it's just amazing how these people, they weren't really being gay. <laughs> they weren't like holding hands or having a, a wedding, but they were just fighting. They were just like trying to make, create a space for themselves, but then they were arrested and jailed, and there are laws preventing them from doing that, and how it's really discouraging because they were just trying, you know, they were just trying to change, you know, so then it's just like, I don't know, do I want to be the person to put myself in that situation? You know, is that the life that I want to live? Um, like just trying to fight for that change or being in a nation and just being undercover about who I am and my identity. Um, yeah, comfort has a lot to do with me staying in this country right now um, and not really moving back to Nigeria because then at the same time it's like I deserve to be happy you know I deserve to live a life of ease and I'm very privileged to go have options on where I can live to get that ease and that life um, so I think I should use that privilege but then again there are people who don't have that privilege and by me just flying all over the world to find a place where I could be queer, like it doesn't help the people who are stuck in Ghana or stuck in Nigeria who are just 
being arrested for just creating a safe space for gay people, you know. Yeah, it's just, it's very, it's very unfortunate, you know. I don't know if that's a fight for me to fight right now, um, addressing homophobia in Nigeria. Um, I don't know. I don't. And it's okay if it's not. <laughs> it's not, it's just... It's not easy. It's not easy thought to sit with, though. You know, it's not really easy thought to sit with. It's it's hard. It's really hard because, like, it's just a luck of the draw that I get to be born in the U.S. and I get to have the privileges and the ease and the access that I have. You know, like people are so much less fortunate. Um, and I care a lot about Nigeria. Like, I love being Nigerian, um, but to not be able to go there, it's weird. It's it's. It's weird. It's like, I don't know, what should I do? Like, go back and live my life in the closet there and be risk of being murdered or jailed in Nigeria? Or should I just pretend I'm straight? I don't know. And even just like asking that from a partner is really hard. <laughs> and these are things I have to deal with on my own. Yeah, it's hard to ask other people to be uncomfortable when I have my own comforts, too. Can you talk to me about kind of um, the role of the heterosexual community in kind of deconstructing um, colonial perspectives of gender and queerness in America? But if you can talk about it um, in Africa, that as well like deconstructing like heteronormativity in the US and Africa? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, so um, heteronormity, F the straights. Just kidding. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like uh, here there's just like a lot of general expectations. Um, and even like within the queer community, like I'm very feminine. I appear very feminine. And I feel like that attracts a lot of masculine women. And in that, in the relationship, they expect me to cook and clean and do certain things for them, just have a very feminine role, even though we are two women and there shouldn't be an expectation of roles. And I feel like um, in Africa or at least in Nigeria, just like challenging, just basically challenging the gender roles. Like I have this um, question, I like to weed out men. And it's always just like, if we got married and I chose not to take your last name, would that be a problem? And for a lot of traditional Nigerian men, that would be a problem. And I usually am just like, okay, I think we're good. Um, but I don't know, I think it's just like, I don't know, not like, just because you're a man, you don't have to do a certain thing. Just because you're a woman, you don't have to do a certain thing. Like, like people are fluid, life is fluid, you know, gender, sexuality, everything is fluid. You can make like, you don't always have to follow the rules that were told to you. You can make up your own rules along the way. You can make up, you can choose what works for you and do that. Like, you don't have to do what works for everyone. It may not work for you. So, like, I don't know, like in Africa, you know, or in like, Nigerian culture, like, the man doesn't have to be the breadwinner. The woman can be the breadwinner. The man doesn't have to control all the money. The woman can control the money or... The woman doesn't have to take care of the children all the time. The man can also take care of the children all the time. And there shouldn't be an expectation of, oh, because you appear feminine or, oh, because you're a woman or, oh, because you're masculine or you are a man, 
that you should behave a certain way, like you should contribute financially or whatever. Just do whatever works for you, you know, like whatever works for your relationship, do it. Don't have these preconceived notions about like who should do what. I've yet to see, um, actually no, I'm wrong. I know a Nigerian couple with a hyphenated last name. It's um, this pharmacist that I did a rotation with. She hyphenated her last name with her husband. The only one, only one couple I've seen that with, like Nigerian couple. I like to see a little bit more of that. I love hyphenated names too. Okay. <laughs> would you take your wife's last name? I would prefer just a hyphenated name. What if you took her last name? Would I take her last name? Mm-hmm. I would want a hyphenated last name. Like I don't think, like okay. I wouldn't. I don't think I want her to take my last name too. Mm-hmm. I think a hyphenated. I think I feel like hyphenated last names are a great. But at the same time, like when you get a hyphenated last name, the child. So yeah, and then the child has a hyphenated last name. It's like three last names. But at the same time, it's like why? Why not? My favorite thing is creating a new last name. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, yeah, that's new. (laughs) Yeah, like merging your last names to make a new last name. That way your child only has one last name. Yeah. Actually, I would take my last name. Now that I think about it, yeah, I would. It feels obvious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. But at the same time, like, I, I get... I'm glad you asked that question because, like, I had to—I literally had to think about it. Okay, like, I make an effort to be progressive. I make an effort to be understanding, but it's like, okay, why am I having this mental block here for this? So it's mm-hmm. like, it's always, it's always fun when you kind of see your own programming, you know. Mm-hmm. So the word that like comes to my mind is um, chauvinism. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm saying it right. Am I saying it right? If you know, I—I I, I don't know how to say words. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I say it right. But um, I guess chauvinism is the idea of like seeing yourself as the priority or like I feel like the word has been used to describe like white chauvinist or white male chauvinist or male chauvinist. Um, but seeing yourself as the priority, putting yourself as the most important character in a situation, um, understanding your worldview as the most predominant and the most accurate and the most authentic. Um, and I can kind of, I can really see how that kind of colors like the interactions between the world and queer people because it's like these chauvinist perspectives that come from most people who are, come from this like hetero society. It kind of, it colors literally everything about the other side of it. Mm-hmm. So like the point I think I'm trying to make is just that like, this whole idea of chauvinism is like, I feel like it's so portrayed, and I don't know how much research you've done or if you can speak on it, but it's portrayed as something that's like super intentional or something that's super violent and super aggressive. And it's not always like that. It's definitely like a subconscious, a subconscious understanding of your worldview as being the most real, just because it's like, that's, it's the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I made that realization just through like my interactions with white people and just kind of understanding this like, oh okay white people think that they're inherently smarter than me 
because they look at me and they don't think that me as a black person, I have anything to teach them. And I'm like, okay. And it's not even necessarily that like you're a bad person or you're like, you're being intentionally violent. It's literally like baked into you to just like make that assumption that you're teaching things to me and it's never the other way around. Mm -hmm. And like the more that like I'm trying to be an ally, the more I'm realizing, okay, that's still baked into me as well as somebody who's like a hetero male. Uh, somebody who is a male, like I, I have to undo that physically. Um, and the more I realize, the more I realize, it's just like you have to, you literally have to, like you have to understand what you have to undo. I don't know how many people have come to that realization or are coming or are coming to that realization, but I don't. It feels like the right first step. Yeah, for sure. And I think also just like experiencing different points of view. Yeah, like different just I don't know it's like a white person like talk to more black people or people who aren't white and they'll realize that there's some who are actually much smarter than you you know or just like as a man just like talk to different types of women or people of different genders and um experience what they have to offer you um yeah when you talk about chauvinism as like a violent thing I think it can be violent when it's like an intentional like as a society they intentionally give a certain message, um, like in the, t in the times of blackface, um, and even like even right now, like Hollywood is pretty racist. So I feel like there are certain messages. Oh yes, actually, even right now, because I feel like there's certain black messages that are um, portrayed to give a certain viewpoint, um, or to have like have, let Americans have a certain viewpoint of black people. Um, even like if it's a triumphant story, there has to be some sort of tragedy that happens to black people. And I feel like that's a form of chauvinism. But then you said they're also personal chauvinism. Like, yes, I am a queer black woman, but I'm sure there are some, I'm also able-bodied, you know, so there, I'm sure there are a lot of perspectives I have that, um, a lot of perspectives and a lot of assumptions that I have that someone who is not able-bodied like, has this very different, you know? so. Yeah, I feel like it's a very complicated thing, you know, because like, e like even as a minority, I might think that, no, I understand everything. I have all the worldviews, I have all the perspectives, and I wouldn't know until like I met someone else who was different, you know? So yeah, I think just like meeting different types of people brings to mind the things that you don't know, because it's hard to know what you don't know if you're in a vacuum or if you're in a bubble. But once you are open-minded, you meet different people, you are open to correction and changing, then I guess that's a way to address chauvinism. But at the same time, like when when we talk about we have to we have to make sure that we have like a mingling of people. Mm -hmm. One would assume that oh America America is the <laughs> perfect mingling of people, but at the same time, how do you kind of make sure that the power dynamic is not in favor of the white man who's there with good intentions? Because mm. I've definitely recognized that like. And I know a lot of people, you you tell me, but like, you might you might identify with this too. Like, I definitely self-censor. Like, I, I self-censor a lot. And I'm trying to work on that just mm -hmm. to like, like, okay, if I'm around, I'll use an example. I saw, um, I, went, I saw a film like a week or two ago. Um, it was like at a big pavilion. It was screening um, where the filmmakers were there. It was like the director, not, not the director, the producers and the cinematographers. The director wasn't able, able to be there. But um, it was a film on 
jazz and like how black people have shaped the jazz jazz culture in America. Um, and this was a film that was played in Columbia, Maryland to a crowd of majority like older white older white people. And I'm like looking at this, I'm like, okay. Um, they knew that this was going to be played here. They knew the audience for their film. Why did they select this? Um, watching the film, me as like the only person who really looks like me and is my age in the crowd, and I'm thinking, okay, like, why isn't this being tied to more than just like American slavery? Why is everything in this movie just kind of being tied to slavery? Why aren't we, why aren't we going back and looking at like actual African history and like tying that? Like, why aren't we getting a new perspective beyond just like what we're consistently told? Mm-hmm. So after the movie, it's like, of course, people are mingling, chatting, whatever. I'm asking, oh, what did you think? And of course, like, the white people, oh, I loved it. It was wonderful. And in my mind, I'm just like, of course, because you don't know how to critique it. You don't know what's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And for me to say that, oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't like it. It's like, I'm getting, like, looks like, oh, my goodness, you didn't like it. Wow, well, I thought it was great, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then come to find out, I see, like, the people who made the movie, it's a group of white people. Literally, like, mm-hmm. from the, all the producers, the cinematographer, apparently the only person in this movie who was actually a black person was the director who wasn't even able to be there that day was just like i was like i was floored Mm -hmm. i was like this is this is insane and then i'm like as i'm trying to speak to them Mm -hmm. as i'm telling them of course like people around them are giving them praise and i'm trying to speak to them telling them like yeah i didn't love the movie but i feel like i have to really consolidate what my i have to consolidate what my grievances are Mm -hmm. because i don't want to be there being the angry black yeah yeah coming just coming full circle around it's like yeah like that feeling of like having to self-censor it's like how do we how do we work on that how do we just be more aware of that if you what are your thoughts on that uh it's a problem it's a huge yeah. problem i struggle with it a lot like just like sometimes at work i feel like i can't speak my mind or say what i have to say because i don't want to be the angry black woman you know and it's like we're seeing just like like not like co- very covert racism or microaggressions and trying to point it out like like trying to figure out the white way to point it out that doesn't make you seem so aggressive yeah yeah the white way to point it out yes yes <laughs> okay. yes and That's it's great. just like i don't i don't know how to fix that i'm so yeah. yeah. i'm still figuring it out i don't know how to fix that but it's a struggle it's i think yeah, like what you were saying earlier, like, oh, yeah, America's the best place for commingling, blah, 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 blah. But then I think, like, that's why it's just so important to have, like, black spaces or just, like, very niche spaces for people for us to talk about issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that in, like, creating those issues, we fortify ourselves, you know, we give ourselves courage and we give ourselves techniques so when we go out there, we are able to have a better voice in addressing these things. Because, um, like... Most of the times, it's just like us as marginalized people needing to address these white people, like, and for them to just like humble themselves and just to listen for a bit instead of just like getting all defensive or whatever. Um, I don't know. I feel like we should ask some white people this. <laughs> just like, I feel like what? We should ask some white people this question, like how how can we tell you that you're racist? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to tell you that you are racist. <laughs> Up. Honestly, that's not a bad idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, 
I'm still figuring it out. Yeah, it's hard. It's like, like as marginalized people finding the kindest way to voice our oppression or our grievances, it's weird. It's like sometimes we don't have to say it in a nice way. We shouldn't have to. And if they take it the wrong way, that's their problem. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something I tell myself. I don't know if I believe it, <laughs> but um, it helps to make me a little bit more courageous. It's like I am speaking up for myself. You know, I am speaking my mind. If they choose to take it a certain way, that's clearly their problem. And anyway, anyway I say it, they'll probably take an offense to it. So I might as well say it. Might. I think um, something that I guess has stood out in this section of the conversation is just like um, your emphasis on the, the importance of community and just making sure that we have like that community to kind of like just be real with like just to make sure that we're let me rephrase how I'm saying this but the community building aspect of it is like really 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 important and I don't think we have enough of that even touching back to what we were saying earlier about how we're a little bit too comfortable and maybe even just like we're a little too insulated. Um, I know you mentioned before when we were talking that you have a garden, and that yeah, a garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that like that sounds like a really, really strong way to build community. Can you talk about how your experience with that has kind of been? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a community garden. Um, so one thing that I love about this that I'm sorry to realize is that like farming and gardening has been in my family for generations, you know? It's like a thing that Nigerians do. Like my dad always had a garden in our house. Like if I go home, my grandma has like farmlands and my aunts and uncles have farmland in the village. It's like what we do. So yeah, like when I came to Baltimore, I was taking a social justice course. Um, I was introduced to the small community garden and I joined community garden as one of the organizers and like I made a lot of very strong lasting friendships from um, my community garden but um, yeah I I think garden is amazing it, I think it could be a very spiritual practice you know being with the ground with the soil respecting nature respecting how nature takes its course you know caring for something nurturing something watching it grow understanding that there are certain things that are out of your control that you just have to leave it up to nature to handle um i also through gardening got into i'm starting to get into like um what's it called medicinal herbs medicinal medicine um kind of also going back into traditional Igbo spirituality there are a lot of herbs and medicines that have like such great power um, and healing properties to them. So um, it's given me an opportunity to explore that a little bit more. Um, But yeah, I love gardening. Like when COVID hit last year and everyone was shut down, I would always just go to my community garden and just like pray and garden and just cry and laugh and sing and just do whatever. It was just like my safe space to be um, where I felt safe. Um, this year we were displaced by the city and a developer, EA gentrification, um, and we were finally able to find a new space and we're about to celebrate the fact that we have a new space, um, welcome ourselves to the community, get some community input about what, how they'd like to see the space, and hopefully 2022 will be gardening full force, but yeah, I love gardening. and. 
Like, I think that farming, yeah, farming is just so powerful. You know, this nation has done a lot to black people. And I think one of them is turned us off to gardening and being one with nature, just like with like the notions of like gardening and farming as like connected to slavery and even just like the government stealing land from black farmers. There aren't a lot of black farmers in this country. So I think just like also by me gardening, it's also like spiritual, it's calming, it's relaxing, but I also think it's a radical act to say that I am taking care of this land, I am owning this land, I'm a steward of this land, you know, I am nurturing this land and it is nurturing me in return. Like I am growing my own food. Uh, so yeah. Love that stuff. We don't talk about gardening at all. This is like the first time, like, I'm, maybe it's because of the circles I'm in, but I'm like, I never heard about anybody talking about gardening in that way. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, it's, like, it's so, it's so enlightening to hear that because it makes a lot of sense. Like, the way you put it is just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to go and start a garden. Yeah, you should. Yeah. You know, we've been gardening for centuries. You know, we've been taking care of the land and the land has been taking care of us. Yeah. Some good stuff. I love gardening. I know um, where this uh, where this part of the conversation stemmed from was just kind of from talking about um, organizing as as a response to chauvinism and chauvinism as inherent in people who aren't part of marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of want to track a little bit back there and just kind of reflect on almost like the oddity of the fact that um, marginalized communities or people in these marginalized communities are intellectually pushed to the sidelines mm -hmm. um, while previously, and you're the one, you let me know this in the pre-questionnaire, different cultures in Africa have celebrated and revered queer and trans people in their community. Mm -hmm. um, I want to give you a space to talk about that. Let me okay. know. Okay, yeah. So. Um one of the books I learned this from, The Spirit of Intimacy, which I mentioned earlier, um, just talking about different types of relationships and, um, yeah, like one of the practices that they had in Burkina Faso is like um, they would sequester men together and sequester women together and the queer women would be the leaders and the spiritual advisors of the women and would help reinforce feminine qualities and what it means to be feminine. And the queer men um, would also be like the leaders of the men group and also like reinforce masculinity. Like, and even um, the book also mentions like trans people, they were like, like they were used as spiritual counsel. They were considered to be like very enlightened spiritual beings. It's kind of similar to what I imagine indigenous two-spirit people to be like. Like two-spirit is a, a gender concept of um, indigenous people in this country and also just a respected name, you know? So, yeah. And also like, um, like, uh, like I mentioned earlier, there was a king, a gay king in present day Uganda, you know? And like in our native languages, there are terms for um, female husband or 
man-wife or something like that. Like, there are terms, there's language for this. So it's hard to believe that if there's language for it, it's something that was never known. You know, it's something that was there, something that existed. And with Christianity introducing um, the concept that being gay and queer is bad, it also erases our spiritual practice where we respected these people, you know? Like, there are a lot of aspects of traditional spirituality, traditional African spirituality that we don't know of. Um, that was erased through colonialization, but that's that's a few of them. I was surprised when I read that too. I was like, oh, that's cool. I mean, I always knew I was a spiritual leader, but it just reinforced it for me. It was a joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a spiritual leader. It's okay. It's okay to prop yourself up. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really it was really cool to read about it. Um, yeah, and I feel like it's not only in African cultures. Like I said, it's like in Native cultures and maybe Asian cultures and like Latin cultures. I don't know, but like we were respected once upon a time. And I don't want to reiterate, but like even coming back to the importance of community building, like that's something that like we have control of within our communities. Like we literally can make this like. A reality again that we can take from the past even if it's not necessarily on a national scale yeah and like thinking about that too and thinking about like my comfort in the u.s that keeps me here i think that if i had like queer if i knew queer nigerians i would go back to nigeria because i would have the community there to support me and i wouldn't feel alone yeah i think community is really important so one of the questions that I had um, was how do we kind of navigate like a return to traditional contexts of African culture, or basically how do we reclaim our authenticity as Africans? How do we kind of rediscover the things that we lost through colonialization? Um, and it feels like we're kind of leaving, we're leaning towards the answers, like the community building aspect of it is literally like the most important. Mm -hmm. Hard. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like community building, like learning through whatever modalities work for you. Like for me, it's mostly reading and podcasts. Um, maybe for some people, it's like following certain accounts on Instagram or Twitter, joining Facebook groups, um, watching certain films. I reclaim my identity through tattooing. <laughs> so like I have um, Insibity tattooed on parts of my body. I have... Um, the Benin Queen Mother mask tattooed on my arm. And the crown is made out of colonizer heads. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I can't really tell. You can't see the faces. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those are heads of white men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for me it's like tattooing. For others it might be music or dance or food. Um, but like, yeah, it's like, it's different for everyone. Wrapping up, do you have, um, is there anything that you'd like to share or anything you'd like to say to people who share the same cultural space as you, but are still early in their self-actualization journey? Yeah, well, first I would say that being African is amazing. Being African is something to be proud of. 
a lot of what we have today are iPhones, like our resources, like our gold, our silver, our diamond, it comes from Africa. We are rich people, you know? So first you have to be proud. You have to be proud of where you came from. And with that, know your history. You like know about the people that you are, that you, that you come from, you know? Learn about your grandparents and your great grandparents. Know about the clothing, the food, the music, the language, whatever calls to you, but know it because this world tries very hard to make us be ashamed to be African. It tries very hard to erase our culture and to modify it and dilute it in any which way. And we really need to hold on to it and cherish it. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing.